Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology is Matt Risby. Hello, Matt. Hello. And Emily Benita, who people will remember from her appearance on our Mammoth Twin Peaks The Return episode. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Hi, Ed. Good. And I hope people do remember me. (laughs) (laughs) It was a Mammoth episode. Mm. Uh, And uh, yeah, so if, if you don't remember me after that, then that's fine that's up to you there was a lot there <laughs> i think it fits the dreamlike atmosphere of twin peaks that people like saying was emily real that's what we're going for yeah exactly we like to mimic the feel of the things we discuss which is why this episode will periodically break into song i hope you guys are prepared i haven't mm. so it's all going to be improvised and terrible well, those two words go hand in hand and they improvise and terrible <laughs> it's a tautology <laughs> Mm. yeah uh big slam on 90 percent of podcasts <laughs> there but yeah nah. yeah that's probably true i was gonna say i was gonna try and defend improvised podcasts but really comedy bang bang's good but a lot of them do descend into just angry shouting yeah 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 and i can listen to that anywhere angry uninformed <laughs> shouting mm. yeah I, I there's a lot of that on my trip back to the back to the uk this week just in terms of um visiting you know family members and things like that uh it's a politic politically tense time <laughs> to be uh to be somewhat left-leaning in my family so it was uh yeah so there was lots of angry shouting but um but with love yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's a I, i've just watched uh because i've been saying like for a few weeks now i've been watching blackish mm. and i've been kind of ca- catching up with it and i'm up to the episode where trump has been elected oh yeah and they're kind of talking about how it's kind of split workplaces and things and i couldn't help but think that the british version of that would just be so much more savage right because the message at the end of it was whilst yeah we have got differences maybe we can get along and like you know probably work through it and build a better future for everyone whereas like we're like yeah oh, Fuck that, Uncle John's racist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or just, or it'd go, if it was a workplace comedy, like if they were still making The Office now, and boy, that would be insufferable. Um, mm. if, if they were still making episodes of The Office now in the UK, it would just be an entire season of people very awkwardly tiptoeing around any discussion of Brexit and being, uh, yeah, just David Brent trying to make jokes about it and, I don't know, probably Tim just asleep on his desk in despondent tim tim's mm. a remainer i yes, think he might absolutely. be the only remainer in in the office mm. yeah like dawn would be a remainer but lee would be putting pressure on her mm. to leave um and and this is this is i think this is why it'd be perfect for the office to exist now yeah because david brent would be that guy who doesn't understand either either argument <laughs> but he's just trying to make a light-hearted argument about it and then chris finch would turn up with just all these made-up statistics yeah. that he's come up with nowhere, saying, "Oh, I read a book a week, me," uh, and <laughs> you know, and like talking about all these trade figures and all this stuff that is just all nonsense. Mm. Um, and yeah, which I think it would be—I mean, it would be insufferable because you have to sit through it every day anyway. But I think that that moment, if they actually brought the show back for anything, it could be that. Mm. 
Where do they, I think Gareth would be philosophically leave, but also wouldn't have voted because he distrusts institutions. Yeah, probably. Uh, anyway, enough about a show that ended <laughs> 15 years ago. Uh, let's yeah. get on. Let's go on to this week's news. Now, obviously, last week was the Oscars. Last Sunday, it was, uh, you know, all of the winners were read out, some of whom uh, during the time when we were recording. So we had to rush through our predictions last week so that we weren't caught out. But um, not that many surprises really i think which is weird when you consider the shape of water when best picture because mm-hmm. on it's on paper that's not a movie you would expect to win best picture <laughs> no you would think they would be altogether too dark and weird to mm. win best picture but i think that like we said last week there wasn't the obvious candidate yeah 10 years ago something like darkest hour would have been the obvious candidate but this time round, there wasn't that one big film that was sticking out. You could say, well, three billboards had a bit of hype, but it was all about the acting. You know, Lady Bird and Get Out were more about the the kind of the writing and the the impact that those films had. Uh, there was no big obvious like that's the front runner from the beginning. Mm. And I suppose Shape of Water just took the momentum of the DGA awards and all the other stuff that it picked up beforehand, and 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 you know, rode it home through the last stretch. Mm. Uh, Emily, what are your thoughts on this uh, this Oscar season? Oh, I've not seen The Shape of Water for a start, but mm. I have laughed at all of the Twitter commentary on it. <laughs> My favourite yeah. being it should have been called Grinding Nemo. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Rab, yeah. Rab Florence of Consylvania and Video Guiden has been uh. on the one-man Twitter tirade about, but can we all just come back to the fact about what this is? Um, you know, I love Splash. I love Splash. <laughs> I, I wish Splash mm. got a retrospective Oscar, to be honest. I don't think anyone appreciates that film enough. And I'd quite like to see it. In terms of the season, I think it's odd because we were... You realise how much difference a year makes, and yet mm. very little seems to have changed at all. Because last year we had Moonlight, and this year was a lot of uh, allegory and powerful speeches, but I still find it quite difficult to take any of it particularly seriously. I think once The Revenant won Best Picture, I sort of realised um, actually Oscar, in terms of best film, is best film you see in a cinema that's still going to support our industry. It's not about the best film in terms of a cultural product. It's more about rewarding a cinematic experience and even though i haven't seen the shape of water from what i have seen visually i'm sure it's very striking and along a sort of fairy tale line it's very hard not to have it as a crowd pleaser Mm. and i think moonlight in terms of how voting has shifted moonlight is probably a film that everyone's like oh it's the little film that could and would happily give a few votes for so it's not necessarily the most divisive or strongest film that will win it's the one that kind of actually will probably lean towards more sentimentality which sometimes works for films like moonlight who thought that was actually going to win mm. um but i think i i also feel incredibly behind because i've seen so few of the films that were up and i am just really interested to finally see three billboards because it's such a divisive one and for something that i have heard some people say it's absolutely brilliant other people say it's actually pretty racist. Mm-hmm. And for Frances McDormand to accept her Oscar and then say, women all together and we should ask for an inclusion rider. I wonder if someone was like, ah, you know the film you're in that you're about to win a lot of awards for? Kind of racist. 
<laughs> so there's and that to me just encapsulated this do as I say not as I do mm. let's hire women let's have these better um inclusion riders across the diversity and yet you're in a film that is questionably uh how far on have we moved from crash in terms mm. of pages about racial divides in America so I just still need to see most of these films, to be honest. Um, right, the one, yeah. The one thing that really I thought was wonderful was that in terms of best live action short, the Silent Child one. Okay. Being about a young girl who is deaf and her family responding to that. Again, I wish short films had bigger tours and, and more exposure because I think a lot of people have a good feeling about this and want to see it. But Maisie Sly, who's six years old and... Rachel Shenton, who formerly of Hollyoaks, whose father became deaf after chemotherapy. And so she learned to sign. And it's a film about, you know, advocacy and things. And that she signed her speech was so brilliant mm. and important. And in terms of actual advocacy and representation, I thought that was pretty amazing that a film that stars someone with an actual disability won an Oscar for once. Mm. <laughs> so that's yeah. my that's my two cents. Yeah, I think in in in, fi- in like two years' time, the big Hollywood remake of that short film will be upon us with I don't know, like Elizabeth Olsen playing the deaf girl, and it being kind <laughs> of like ridiculously overwrought and directed by Tom Hooper, possibly. Mm. And it will sweep the board. I, I was uh, I was just thinking about the the thing about wishing that shorts got more exposure. There was an interesting statistic that was going around in the week that they because the they do package together the all of the oscar nominated shorts uh, into like a roadshow presentation and they tour it around cinemas in the u.s every year and someone said that i think 10 years ago it grossed the the one for whatever year 2007 that year grossed something like one hundred thousand dollars and this year it was about three and a half million mm. <gasps> and, which i thought was really fascinating that people are it's clear that there is an audience out there for people who want to see these these short films and whoever's putting those packages together has clearly got onto something really that really works because you know that's that's a lot of money for essentially a collection of 20 short films that uh, usually people wouldn't have any other opportunity to see unless you know they get put up online for free or you know they they rent them when they become available which i don't think a lot of people would necessarily think to do I'm still not entirely sure why it's not more popular, given that it is widely accepted that we get an animated short before a Pixar or a Disney. Mm. That why we can't just drop a short like that's a minute and a half long that means we don't have to sit through, you know, we're maybe sitting through 19 minutes of adverts rather than 20 <laughs> minutes of adverts. It's just, mm. you know, I don't really get it. Yeah, because it's always such a pleasure whenever you see it before well not always some of the, some of the, some shorts are not very good that volcano one wasn't wasn't especially good lava mm. but um but yeah it's it's always quite nice to just kind of get a little bit of a, a showcase of a younger talent usually in the case of pixar you know they use it to test out new technologies and to give writers and directors who are new to the studio a chance to try something mm. it'd be nice to see those kind of young talents being given a chance before other movies and for studios to kind of like say okay you know this is someone that we're interested in working with let's put one of their shorts before before a movie and see how it plays yeah completely quite a 
um, that's not an unheard of technique in festivals. No. You'll yeah. have distributors kind of putting things together and um, it's a great way for people to support each other. But the thing that I'm I'm with you, Matt, on, on this as well. Like, I really don't understand why it's not more of a popular thing. I think your example of Pixar is brilliant. But for me as well, it's like, hello, the Internet. Mm-hmm. There are ways that you can have people um, still charge for this. And mm-hmm. yet and we're so used to this kind of short form content now, like it's short films all over the Internet. So I am was not aware of that statistic and that leap in terms of their takings but i find that really promising and hopeful going forward yeah yeah it certainly is is fascinating in terms of you know people are always complaining about how it's so it's so hard to get people to pay for things nowadays because there is so much three content that there is clearly a sizable number of people who are perfectly willing to because it's a unique i guess also it plays into the fact that it's a unique thing to see a bunch of short films together presented that way outside of a festival so the novelty of it i think plays a big part in why that particular uh format for showing those short films has has risen in popularity over the years mm. it could also mm. there's also room for it like on on uh on netflix or prime or something where people mm. sit through hours of content and binge things having like a small thing of like a, you know award award nominated shorts would be like an awesome palate cleanser just to kind of slip between kind of hours of watching the same thing over and over it would be great i mean why not it can't it's not like they're lacking the room are they mm. yeah totally and in kind of the spirit of following up on stories we've been talking about uh, over the last couple of weeks uh, there's a couple of box office stories this weekend that are um well it, very exciting certainly in one case very exciting and the other case kind of oh, okay strange but the exciting one is that black panther continues to do incredibly well and has uh, broken the into the billion dollar club worldwide has earned over a billion dollars which um again uh, is incredible and certainly seems to fly in the face of a lot of the conventional wisdom about uh, films with black casts not traveling uh and you know the fact that it has earned a huge amount in the u.s but also an almost equally large amount elsewhere outside of the u.s is uh, is really quite incredible and the other one being The Greatest Showman, uh, after 12 weeks, has fallen outside of the top 10 in the US, a movie that opened to $8 million and was widely seen as a huge failure, has now got $167 million and the 20th most successful film released last year, which, uh, yeah, both both stories are things that I don't think anyone was predicting <laughs> in the weeks before they came out. Yeah, I mean, Black Panther has done particularly well in China, where there's a lot of mm. uh, think pieces and videos I've seen flying around Twitter that um, there's a kind of, this is going to be a generalization, but there's, there's often a misconception about black culture in China due to mm. like representation of stuff that gets sent over there taken very literally. Um, right. And a lot of videos and think pieces were saying, you know, you know, I'm 40 years old. I have literally never seen black people represented in this way on film. Mm. So it's like this whole thing of saying, well, you know, these films won't play abroad or in certain markets. Well, you know, they will if, you know, you you don't just keep churning out the same awful shit. Mm. Yeah, totally. Conventional wisdom is hella racist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who'd have thought it? And yeah, just the, the Greatest Showman thing is just so bizarre and is 
I think a lot of people point to it as a case of older audiences kind of connecting to the to the movie because it's kind of a throwback to a style of filmmaking that doesn't really happen anymore. But I've seen lots of young film fans on on Twitter. Uh, I know that Manuela and Elena Lazik, who are both writers for Little White Lies, have kind of been singing its praises for months at this point. Uh, and I just find it really heartening, even though I don't necessarily think the movie's that good. I mean, it's a good time. It's a really fun movie, but it's maybe not the best uh, work of filmmaking. I just find it really heartening to see something really find an audience in that way. And again, to go against conventional wisdom of, oh, a film doesn't do very well opening weekend, it's going to be completely forgotten. Whereas this one has uh, just kept chugging along at uh, a very, not even a very impressive rate. It's just been very steady. Like it hasn't dipped all that much for that entire time. It's just kept doing well weekend after weekend after weekend as movies did in olden times. Mm, yeah and it's it's sing-along screenings and stuff are mm. kind of just continually popular i came out of the cinema the other day and i had like an hour to kill before i had to do something else and then i looked at the screenings and there was a there was a sing-along screening of the greatest showman just about to start and i asked and they said mm. oh it's nearly sold out i was just curious wow. but then i just thought could this be my first introduction to the greatest showman you know mm-hmm. kind of a geriatric sing-along uh, like two o'clock on you know a Tuesday afternoon or whatever, and I decided against it hastily. Yeah, it's it's not the best first experience of any movie to be in an audience where everyone's kind of off key singing along. Yeah, unless I have to say, in terms of fan experiences, though, the very first time I ever saw the room, mm-hmm. oh yeah, was a full fan screening, mm. spoons flying at the screen. It at the Lantern Theatre in Sheffield. Mm. And I oh, think it was were you there? Scene. I was there. I, I introduced that screening. I put that screening on. Matt! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I went down My the front and introduced name. it, and I read out an email from Tommy Wiseau that he'd sent. There you go. You were there. Now you're now your dulcet tones make even more sense, Matt. <laughs> it's, all, it's all coming to... But you know what the other thing was? is that as it is Mother's Day in the UK today, mm-hmm. I actually uh, took my mum to that screening as well. Um, <laughs> and neither of us really had a concept of what was going on, but we had the best time. That is that is pretty amazing. Yeah, that, that film is, is pretty amazing to see with the crowd. Watching it on your own on a laptop as an introduction, which was mine, is not mm. quite the same because... Yeah, mine too. I had to review it, so like I just mm-hmm. got sent it and then just like watched it and was like, oh, fuck i'm confused um by this and then it was only then that i realized there was a whole bunch of other stuff that went along with it and then Mm -hmm. yes and then you know years later then our our paths cross emily (laughs) i know i know kismet super weird but i think conventional conventional wisdom and and like demographics have always been off i remember because i used to work at the showroom myself Mm -hmm. yep i remember a very quiet Thursday morning and I was ushering a screen and what was showing was Hush which was Warpex film very reminiscent of Duel mm. and the only two people I let in were two old ladies <laughs> and I triple checked their ticket, uh, tickets to make sure they're in the right place and they were and then they came out at the end after this very gruesome denouement 
smiling, thanked me very much. Off they went. And that was a moment where I knew demographics were shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I had a... The, the, there was something on the... Uh, when I went to see The Shape of Water a few weeks ago, there was, like, a group of, like, middle-aged women all coming with, like, a glass of wine. Um, and were kind of, you know, really... Like, like you see, the, the, the kind of good-time cinema viewers, they were, like, really buzzing before the film started, excited, settled down into the film... Ten minutes in, not for us. As soon as the little fish man came out, and I was like, "If you'd have hung on half an hour, you would have got to the full penetration stage, and you really would have seen something." But you know, it was a bit rich for their blood at that point. Mm. The my my favorite thing, my favorite discovery since coming to the US is uh, the the idea that younger film audiences are disrespectful uh, has largely not proven to be true because. Uh, I obviously I live in Florida and there's a fairly large elderly population here. And so chances are anytime you go see a movie, regardless of the kind of movie that you're going to see, there's going to be a pretty large contingent that are kind of in their, their 60s or 70s. And I tell you what, no one talks more <laughs> during a movie than people in their 60s and 70s who supposedly should be more respectful of the cinematic experience, but are in fact more likely to just constantly ask each other questions about what's going on, which uh, can be quite funny when the film in question is pretty obvious about what it's about. Like I had that with uh, Wonderstruck, the Todd Haynes movie, and the entire first five minutes was someone saying, oh, there's a wolf. <laughs> oh, it's a... oh, it was a dream. Okay. And just being like, why? <laughs> why? Thank you for this audio book of Wonderstruck that I'm being given. It was very, very strange. And that was basically pretty much the entire movie was every so often being like, Oh, it's the same actress. It's like, great, Jen. <laughs> Thank you for, for making sure that we're all up to date. Mm, there should be an option to, to turn it on on Blu-ray, like instead of a director's commentary, <laughs> kind of just mm -hmm. an old person nattering over it, asking inane questions <laughs> about what's on screen. Like that uh, Brass Eye audio commentary, which was where uh, Chris Morris just got a load of homeless people off the street and sat them in a studio and recorded them for half an hour. Uh, yeah. And they had no idea what was going on, but they were just having a chat about how cold it was. Uh, and the kind of the other box office story for this week of note was uh, A Wrinkle in Time, the adaptation of the classic novel directed by Ava DuVernay, opened in the US to uh, about $35 million, which was, is, you know, in the reporting has kind of been seen as, as something of a disappointment because it's quite an expensive movie and there was a lot of hype put onto it. But there also has been this kind of trend of people trying to compete it against Black Panther because, you know, they're both... Uh, movies by black filmmakers with fairly diverse casts but you know other people then pushing back and saying well you know the story shouldn't be these two are competing against each other it should be hey two movies directed by black filmmakers are at number one and number two in the US for the first time quite possibly ever most likely ever and both are doing you know really really well you know A Wrinkle in Time could be doing better considering its budget but it's still uh, impressive either way and obviously Disney are laughing to the bank either way mm, I mean one thing that has kind of uh, kind of occurred to me whilst watching this is A any film would struggle in that slot given how well Black Panther has done mm. uh, and, and B is does it make the scheduling of, of Disney like seem a little short sighted now like through a one huge film uh, coming out three weeks after another big film and I'm starting to wonder whether or not they had 
whilst they'll be happy that Black Panther has done amazingly, whether they actually mm. had that confidence in it and whether they were trying to split uh, some of that money, thinking that perhaps A Wrinkle in Time might appeal more to uh, women audiences and mm. uh, Black Panther might appeal more to male audiences. And it's actually proved to be... I mean, the Black Panther numbers are just... They're completely wrong. <laughs> that any expectations people had have been have been blown out of the water. It's been, you know, a hugely like split audience, and the repeat viewings have, have bore that out. That there's you know a huge proportion of women going to see the movie because it's got freaking awesome women female characters in it. Um, yeah. But I, it just seems starting to seem a little short sighted. But then also wondering whether or not perhaps they didn't have quite the faith in either film on paper. Yeah, I mean that's it. It kind of reminds me about you know last year when wonder woman became such a success and it became uh, apparent that dc and, and warner brothers hadn't signed patty jenkins to more than one movie you know mm. they had they'd only signed her up to direct one movie and the general sense seemed to be they didn't think it was going to be that biggest of a success so that they wouldn't feel the pressure to kind of lock her down for multiple movies and they certainly <laughs> i'm pretty sure they didn't think it was going to be a far bigger hit than justice league and that that might be a little bit of the same thing happening here that if they had known that black panther would still be pulling in more than 40 million dollars per weekend four weeks in they might have thought maybe we should push wrinkling time back a little bit later you know to just before the summer movie season starts as opposed to it inevitably being forced to kind of compete against black panther mm. and it's it, it's going to be weird to see how that does worldwide because outside of the US, knowledge of the novel is very kind of limited, I guess. Mm, yeah, and I guess there are kind of big names in the cast, obviously Oprah is, is hugely famous around the world, but there's not really anyone that you could point to in it saying, okay, they're going to really bring in audiences, or that there is necessarily a hook that's going to make it easy to kind of grasp, because it's a very... Uh, the the novel and by all accounts the film is kind of quite a difficult and kind of heady is is filled with kind of like heady concepts and while you can sell it on visuals which is something that can you know can certainly help a movie worldwide if you're just basically saying hey look at this amazing spectacle uh it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to catch on with audiences mm. and then the final story of the news this week before we get onto our main topic what is uh, certainly news that I'm very interested in, uh, and I'm sure uh, you both are as well. There's been uh, casting news surrounding the BBC's adaptation of His Dark Materials, the Philip Pullman series of uh, fantasy novels printed in the late 90s, which uh, were turned into a not very good movie in the mid-2000s, and is now being adapted into an eight-part uh, miniseries, which we found out this week is going to be directed, most likely by Tom Hooper, <sighs> which is... Yeah. Isn't oh, Matt, I'm so news? glad you said that. I'm not. I'm so unhappy. <laughs> mm, yeah. I mean, I mean, I like counted angles. So, I mean, mm, we're going to get some of those. It's like being told you're being taken out for dinner and it's on someone else and they'll take you wherever you want. Mm. And you go to your favorite restaurant and all they've got is bread and not nice <laughs> bread, just plain bread with no butter on it, maybe stale bread. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you're thinking, well, I'm I'm in my favorite restaurant and it's really nice, but this is bullshit. <laughs> mm. I mean, he has slightly better look on TV than in movies. Like his adaptation of John Adams is pretty good, but also 
that was at a time before he had just developed his unique visual style. So um, if they're now hiring Kim... John Adams, because... the fat motherfucker? Yes, exactly. Right, 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 which, sure. also, which also uh, ties into the... Uh, the casting news because it was announced that Lin-Manuel Miranda is in negotiations at least to play Lee Scoresby which is cool casting although the kind of the problem with that is that when you read that book it's hard to picture anyone other than Sam Elliott play the character and Sam Elliott did play the character in the movie so it's kind of a shame that they made one perfect choice in the uh, in the original uh, which they can't reproduce this time they could in one way and that's by casting Nick Offerman Ah, as yeah. alternately Scoresby. <laughs> yeah, totally. And uh, the other one was that Daphne Keane from Logan is going to be playing... Why can't I remember her name? I keep thinking it's just... Dakota. Lyra. Lyra. Yeah, I was like, Dakota Blue. No, that was the actress. Yeah, playing mm-hmm. Lyra. Uh, and she was great in that movie. And I'm really excited to see her do something else. But yeah, it's, so it's kind of a good, bo- good news, bad news. Because Tom Hooper, uh, not someone that I think most people are fans of. But some good people, and it's nice that a lot of energy and money is being put behind this adaptation, and everyone involved seems to be trying to, you know, kind of not mess it up again. Yeah, because that's just my reticence. Like, are they actually going to adapt the book this time? Mm, yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of worried about because they say it's an eight-episode miniseries, and. I haven't been able to find out if that means that they're just doing the first book and it's going to be eight episodes or if it's going to be all three books crammed into eight episodes. Yeah, because both could work, but there's a lot in that third book. And if it's just confined (laughs) to like the last three episodes or whatever, I mean, that doesn't seem like the greatest approach. And Tom Hooper, I can't (laughs) get over that. (laughs) It's just so, so uninspiring as a choice. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like maybe he'll be replaced by Colin Trevorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, or yeah, or maybe they could go the other way and and just put Lord Miller in there and just be like, <laughs> okay, we're just going to play kind of, uh, we're just going to kind of keep playing this kind of paper cup, this kind of uh, cup game of just moving around recently fired directors until we find someone who works. But or no, literally any woman. Yes, that could be good as well. Don't worry, ladies, I've got your back. I'm here. <laughs> yeah, we were just thinking of mediocre white people who get fired. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad we've had our uh, like privilege check there because yeah. we were getting carried away. Because yeah. there are other directors other than people who get fired from Star Wars. Other lady directors are available. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're we're just reflecting the thinking of the industry, which is like who who's available? Uh, any women? <laughs> mm. How about people who've recently had? To, what's what's Josh Trank up to? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and but. But speaking of women, though, mm. Kristen Wiig as oh. Wonder Woman. Yes, yes. Not uh, not as Wonder Woman, sorry, <laughs> as one of Wonder Woman's pals, eventually. Mm. Yes, uh, that's very exciting. It's quite exciting. And I didn't think anything would ever make me want to watch a Wonder Woman film again, because uh, mm. I was not a fan. Okay. Uh, but they, they just find a way. They've just hooked me back in. Mm. And she appears to be playing uh, a cheetah. Or even a character called Cheetah, who is... Just, just a cheetah in the background. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she's just going to see you out the whole thing. She's going to Andy Serkis it, uh, you know, in the <laughs> background. But, like, from I looked at the picture and I read the synopsis of the character of Cheetah. I'm not really up with my comics. But, like, it sounds just like Chitara from the Thundercats. 
there's not really many ways round of kind of like having a, a like a humanoid cheetah. Mm. But I, I'm actually very interested to see Kristen Wiig play a villain because, like, I mean, I love her. I think she's great, and I, um, I wish she'd mo- do more serious things. This is not serious. She's playing a human <laughs> cheetah, um, but it's nice to see her do something different. I guess. Mm. And her kind of career in recent years certainly has moved in that direction. There's obviously like you know the big. That she occasionally will do a big comedy movie, but she's more likely to do something like uh, Welcome to Me, that kind of really dark and strange kind of comedy drama where uh, I think she plays a woman who wins the lottery who then basically commissions a TV show about herself, which is a really uh, fascinating kind of examination of mental illness and narcissism. Mm -hmm. And she was also, she was good in The Skeleton Twins, uh, Mm -hmm. which you and I both kind of really rate. And yeah. it would be nice to see her get to do that. And uh, she's also in Darren Aronofsky's Mother, which I always forget. But she was, I guess she was kind of a villain in that. But, I mean, she she was just a representation of the media as kind of a, a metaphor. So not really a character to really kind of dig into. But, yeah, she is uh, a, a fascinating and versatile actor who I'd really like to see get to try more things. And this would be fairly different to anything she's ever done before mm. in, and, in terms uh, of scale. I think one of the things I did like about Wonder Woman, because I wasn't, like, not a fan, but it was just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it and and this is as high a praise as I could give it. It is the best DC movie <laughs> from the DCEU, <laughs> and it is just fine. <laughs> like, it is, it is painfully average. Um and the one thing I did like about it was was some of the the humor, which not all of it landed, but the stuff that did land was pretty funny. Like you know, uh, trying to carry a sword and shield through like a revolving door and mm-hmm. uh, um, struggling to kind of crocodile Dundee her way around London in a kind of fish out of water scenario. And I think that if Kristen Wiig can bring a little bit of levity, it can kind of undercut some of the pomposity and stupidity that it goes along with pretty much all of the DCEU movies. Um, mm. And that can only be a good thing because they are laughably serious and portentous. Yeah. And there's also, you know, this would be probably be one of the first ones that would be produced completely without the involvement of Zack Snyder, who we all know has now essentially been fired from the DCEU. So maybe without that influence there and with a seemingly kind of company-wide acknowledgement that things aren't working maybe this is a sign that they're going to try and push it in that direction saying like what was all the stuff that people liked about wonder woman oh it was kind of like the the lightness of tone in places and the sense of humanity maybe we should try some of that yeah that would be you know a good place to start to make people like the characters and not wish they all died in some horrible accident mm. there was one thing ed before you before we carry on and um it ties into the kind of slightly glib comment about you know, female directors and dudes getting fired from star wars which mm-hmm. was the news oh, yes. that this week that they have hired john favreau to mm. be the showrunner of the live action star wars tv show that's going to wear on disney's kind of subscription service now they have come under a lot of criticism before for essentially hiring exclusively white dudes to uh, to do their stuff, um, mm. and it's that is totally valid. And uh, Kathleen Kennedy's been in charge now for a few years, and she has made a lot of noise about trying to 
um, diversify the portfolio of um, directors working for Lucasfilm. And so far, it's just been white dudes. And then when they fire a white dude, they hire a white dude to replace the white dude that was just fired. Now, there's <laughs> been a lot of noise about who could possibly do things and who might get the chance to do things. And we've had three announcements in the last uh, kind of six months which have been Ryan Johnson to do a new trilogy. He is going to write and direct the first one and oversee them all. There is scope there for other directors to come in, other writers to come in. Okay, that's exciting, but it's still a white dude in charge. Maybe they'll have some, like him acting as some kind of like shepherd of the whole process. And then we get the news that the, the Game of Thrones guys, they're doing their own trilogy. Two more white dudes are like, well, okay, you know, we're still not getting any diversity hires. We're still not getting any kind of um, uh, money where Lucasfilm's mouth is with regards to any kind of commitment to have female or people of colour directors coming into the the company and, and the series. But you're like, well, maybe there's still time. But then to announce John Favreau <laughs> as the showrunner of the TV show on International Women's Day... And still not mention anyone directing it. That is a fucking terrible look, Lucasfilm. Mm. Yeah, it's um, yeah. That, at that point, I think it's a, a pattern, isn't it? Particularly when you consider that John Favreau's experience of showrunning a TV show is almost non-existent. Like he did that show where he interviewed people around a table. Mm. Um, which oh, was it, it? Five dinner dinner with five. That's yes. Yeah. Oh my so. God. It should if, have been called Dinner with Five Insufferable Dicks. Because it was kind of a little bit... It <laughs> I was think little, it was. It just yeah. shortened it. Yeah, it was a little yeah. bit like Entourage, but with, you know, <laughs> more cigars. Yeah. If if the new series is just going to be nothing but those scenes from the prequels where it's like the Jedi Council sitting around, then <laughs> yes, perfect choice. But it, it doesn't speak well of them that their first choice is to just kind of go... Hmm, let's just go with a guy who sort of has experience in doing this sort of thing, but also none at all. And, <laughs> and who... I'm sorry, but was Favreau's last film not Chef? It was The Jungle Book. Was his last uh, his last yeah. movie? Um, and that did that did okay? It did very say. well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, he has got chops in terms of making big budget movies, but like. I, I think if you're gonna, it, like, and I honestly believe that Lucasfilm will hire um, uh, directors, like female directors, directors of color. I will. I do think they'll give interesting directors and people who need the platform a shout in these three trilogies that we've come or the two trilogies in the TV series. But just fucking announce it. Don't <laughs> don't keep saying this to it because it 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 just becomes like this. It's like being flogged. It's just like, oh, we're going <laughs> to promise you something. It's going to be good. Here's Ron Howard. It's just like, fuck, <laughs> guys, seriously. Just like, I don't care if you announce, because this isn't going to be made for two or three years. Just mm. hold off until you say, hey, John Favreau is going to uh, show run the TV uh, series. But look who is, is like directing a bunch of episodes. Look who's writing a bunch of episodes. Isn't this exciting? It mm. may, Then we'll say, oh, it makes sense to have someone who is experienced at launching an in a huge multi-billion dollar franchise that relies on special effects in the background, pulling the strings, whilst all these people are getting to play in that playground. That would be hugely exciting, rather than, here's John Favreau. <laughs> anyway, yeah. that's, that's me on that one. Yeah. Uh, anything to, to add, Emily, before we get on to the, the main topic? Oh, just resounding agreement with Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That's what we like to hear. As long as yeah, everyone think... agrees, 
We should have you on more often because I like to hear that. <laughs> uh, okay, so now we'll go on to the main topic of our episode this week, which is CW's Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which uh, ended its third season uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, for people who are unfamiliar. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is a series created by Rachel Bloom and Aline Brosh McKenna. Uh, uh, McKenna is probably most famous for writing The Devil Wears Prada. Rachel Bloom, before creating and starring in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, uh, was uh, someone who uh, kind of grew a huge following through doing uh, videos, uh, comedy videos, particularly on, on YouTube. And the series follows the life of a character called Rebecca Bunch, who is a lawyer in New York, uh, I'm trying to say this about accidentally singing the theme song from the first series, which does actually uh, set up the premise very well. Uh, a lawyer in New York who uh, runs into a ex-boyfriend of hers, or boyfriend's probably very strong, uh, someone she dated at camp 15 years earlier one day in New York and decides to uproot herself and move to West Covina, California in order to pursue him. And that was kind of the initial premise. Over three seasons, it has really become a hugely fascinating exploration of uh, mental health of of issues surrounding kind of like women in the workplace to a to an extent and you know also jewish identity it's a very complicated and layered and wonderful and exhilarating and and moving show which also is an original musical that has two or three new songs every week it is kind of incredible that this show exists and it has been running for three seasons uh, so far so uh emily you uh you know you pitched me on on doing uh this episode uh i'm gonna let you have the kind of the the, the first kind of se- say on you know why this show is so fascinating no pressure <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna start with a fun fact that i found out today so one of the songwriting team for crazy ex-girlfriend is a guy called adam schlesinger mm. who is the bassist for fountains of wayne Yes. Who are most famous, possibly, (laughs) whether they like it or not, for their epic banger, Stacey's Mom. Mm. And I found that out thanks to my friend Harry Harris today. So I'd just like to thank Harry for that. I think I got in touch with you, Ed, on I think it was the sixth episode of this third season. And Mm. I watched it and I was just so in awe of it and I wanted to talk about it. And the thing that I find most interesting in how Crazy Ex-Girlfriend has genuinely evolved and developed over its three seasons is that Brosh McKenna is mainly a feature writer and I think it's one of the first shows that I really see and appreciate quite a classical three-act structure Mm. in that roughly each series kind of falls into roughly three parts and I think that the third season the kind of first major inciting instant if you if you want to call it that way which is normally the end of the first act and and the kind of well your turning point of your first act essentially into the second act is Rebecca finally receives a diagnosis Mm. in this third season and that becomes the momentum for the rest of the season of how she settles into it, how she responds to it, how everyone else reacts around her. And I think it's one of the best representations I've ever seen of that in TV, because up until then, as a viewer, you're aware that Rebecca has stuff going on and she's quite straightforward about having some kind of vague mental health 
issues, but you grow with her as a protagonist first. She doesn't start as a diagnosis because it's very lazy characterization across the board in culture to be like, they're depressed or they're schizophrenic. And it just goes to show a complete lack of knowledge in terms of what these things actually mean. But that Rebecca has always struck as a character first mm. and a person first before she is actually her illness, even though she struggles with it, I thought just completely blew me away and that really crystallized in this third season Mm. yeah i in thinking about this third season i was i was i was worried about becoming you know there was that thing when there was that vox article about rogue one where they said you know this was the first star wars movie that was about war and everyone made fun of it being like you know (laughs) wars in the title or whatever and like being like this is the first season of crazy ex-girlfriend in which kind of like the first word of the title is kind of imperative is really is but, but that is that is kind of like what the the show really focuses in and digs deep in this season it really explores the fact that you know the way in which people kind of perceive Rebecca Bunch in the show is like oh that she's kind of like zany or whatever and or that you know then and the show is like well no actually there are you know there are she has deep-seated mental health issues which have been misdiagnosed or have gone unaddressed by the people in her life and or or are completely misunderstood by the world at large and this show really does explore that in in ways that are you know you know often very funny particularly through the because of the musical format you know there's lots of really great songs uh about her her emotional well-being and things like that but it is really amazing to see, you know, a show that has this title, which, you know, initially kind of caused people to blanch initially. Like there was a lot of uh, hand wringing about when the show started, about the, the fact that it was called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which was kind of made fun of in the original opening song, <laughs> where they kind of say the situation's a lot more nuanced than that. Um, but it really is like in in this season, the fact that it goes to the point of, her very nearly committing suicide having a a suicide attempt in the middle of the show and really kind of dealing with the ramifications of that is was really startling to see even though the show had already gone to some fairly dark places over the the previous couple of seasons Mm. completely and i and i think what's really interesting is the particular mental illness that rebecca is diagnosed with Mm. she is she is diagnosed with borderline personality disorder which as pretty much anything that's been put in the dsm ever (laughs) it can be quite contentious and it's i think it's still really important to continue to reassess these because what is the point of a diagnosis if it doesn't actually end up helping the person that you diagnose Mm. but bpd has um been uh disproportionately diagnosed to women Mm. And it has often been seen as it's a way to pathologize women's reactions to trauma, possibly. But I think the thing that, without wading into too much more about BPD that I don't understand and that I've only heard, what it what comes across really clearly in the show is crazy ex-girlfriend is a term that is just bandied about to describe any woman who maybe reacts in a way that is emotional or vengeful 
Mm. or seeking justice basically any woman who takes who has feelings or responds to something that is maybe inconvenient is branded as that but then Rebecca is actually someone who is very determined and hopeful and ambitious Mm. but to the point that her illness tips it over into becoming destructive to herself and those around her Mm. and I love that subversion I think yes the situation is a lot more nuanced than that and the reason that there was so much hand-wringing it's the perfect title for that show it's perfect because Mm. I definitely blanched at it when I first heard it I was like what what is this and then as soon as you're into it you're like oh no you're doing a thing you're doing it well and and also within season three itself like like you talk about the three act structure it was so having seen the whole season now it was really fascinating to me to see how the first act really was them kind of fainting in one direction which is like oh we're doing a whole fatal attraction thing or a whole swim fan thing in particular uh which is my favorite thing that they've referenced the movie swim fan more than anyone has referenced the movie swim fan in the previous 17 years not enough swim fan references definitely exactly so i think they've definitely filled that gap in the cultural uh, lexicon nicely but um you know they're kind of going in that direction in which they're kind of playing into uh, and hilariously into these stereotypes of these kind of thrillers vengeful woman thrillers that were particularly prevalent in the 80s and 90s and then you know five six episodes in they then pivot to say you know oh no this you know this is kind of like the popular conception of this idea you know we're going to kind of play with it for a moment but now we're going to show you that this is not just you know a kind of fun trope you know underpinning this you know can be some really serious uh uh, issues Mm. it's like the equivalent of if the Andy Griffith show followed, like, you, you know, the, the town drunk uh, mm. home for an episode and watched him die of liver failure, it's <laughs> like it's 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 saying we're like we're going to present a character and a and a personality and kind of make fun of it, uh, you know, in a light-hearted way, and then we're going to kind of come back and hit you with it because obviously it's serious, mm. but you have just completely forgotten that for two seasons. And when it yeah. does happen, and when we have, we probably should have put spoilers at the start of this. Um, yeah. When in you know halfway through season three of what is a, you know ostensibly a light-hearted musical theatre show, uh, the the main character tries to kill herself, and before that, destroys every single person in the cast that we love mm. um, by revealing their you know faults that we've all known uh, to their faces and alienating everyone, including the audience. Um, it's a big deal. Mm. And I can't re- I can't really remember too many other shows that that really kind of pivot that hard. Maybe the the last episode, the last minute of the pilot of the Shield. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's which is very interesting because uh, uh, we were talking about this beforehand, um, Emily. The the fact that this show is kind of, is very much in the you know in terms of when we talk about peak TV, the golden age of TV, like da da da. People often talk about, you know, it was an, uh, a, a renaissance for anti-heroes, particularly in things like Breaking Bad and Mad Men. But uh, what's interesting about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is it is dim- uh, very clearly the story of an anti-heroine. Completely. And that that's absolutely integral to everything. Mm. And I think what's interesting is that not only do we see an anti-heroine 
it's not solely about Rebecca. As her self-awareness grows, our access to everyone else in West Covina grows and develops and the other characters realize their own faults and failings and in this in this uh there's an episode in this season in particular where white josh and rebecca's partner at the law firm and on on and off again affair nathaniel end up having this meeting where they where they find themselves both brokenhearted and they respond in the same very unhealthy way which is like this incredibly restrictive eating and exercising and Mm. they're bawling just because they're hot doesn't mean they don't have feelings (laughs) and which is such an interesting way of like looking that's a way of looking into masculinity and I think the show shows a great like range in terms of how gender can restrict a lot of people in in you know toxic masculinity there's toxic femininity Mm. and I think in terms of um, the beginning of this season is so interesting because Rebecca does seem to assume that Sharon Stone, Femme Fatale, Glenn Close coming out for revenge because in terms of her BPD, you're constantly looking for something to to affirm your sense of self. So that might be taking on a role. That might be exploring yourself and and tethering yourself to your relationships through other people and that's part of the genius of the show is making that explicit in the songs I think it's in season two one of my favorite songs is I'm the villain in my own story where Rebecca suddenly realizes that she is actually the antagonist in terms of herself and other people and so being able to perfectly mirror the experiences of someone who's struggling with BPD through narrative itself is brilliant. And she is an anti-heroine and these roles that she kind of assumes for herself always fall flat because really she needs to be herself. But I mean, there's a book called Difficult Men, which I read, which was great. And that goes through kind of chronologically peak TV and essentially um, claiming it as a wider meta narrative about the crisis in modern masculinity but it has a, a a little kind of nod to Sex and the City at the beginning in terms mm. of HBO and TV that pushes the boundaries. And now it feels like finally kind of what Sex and the City was sort of scratching the surface of is finally coming out now because there is an appetite for these characters. And I've noticed in the past couple of years, really brilliant, complex characters are starting to come out who who are women like in Glow, it's a whole cast of interesting women, but particularly mm. uh, Ruth, Alison Bree's character, is a complete anti-heroine and yet absolutely compelling. Mm. Unreal, uh, Shiri Appleberg um, playing Rachel, again, yeah. compelling and grim. And again, all these women kind of struggling with their own femininity and the roles that are being shackled on them in terms of the expectations to be nice and submissive and the socialization that they've had my it, it would be nice if you know it weren't just lots of white women even though every show that these women are in are actually very diverse mm. <laughs> the anti-heroines are still all still all kind of the white gals but you know we'll see but I do like how everyone kind of starts off quite sharp in season one and then by season three you do see Rebecca actually making friends with former adversaries such as Valencia Mm. and Valencia being canonically queer is brilliant can I just say 
like mm-hmm. no big deal. <laughs> and I'm really excited by now there seems to be less of an impetus for women characters because there are so few. They don't have to be aspirational anymore. They can be genuine characters and have depth and complexity and be not very nice a lot of the time, but still mm-hmm. utterly compelling, which is the freedom that I would even argue that Joan and Peggy don't really have that in Mad Men, but Don always did. Um, yeah. Tony, Tony Soprano always did. Everyone in The Wire. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's nice. that, And I think Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is definitely a masterpiece in tone as well in terms of how to... It never feels too light or too dark. It yeah. always just feels very real to me because I think it's exactly how Rebecca makes sense of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think it's really fascinating seeing that shift in, like, like you were talking about, Rebecca's need to take on a role, the way in which the show kind of has shifted away from its not necessarily its original conceit, but certainly its original focus on deconstructing the tropes of the romantic comedy. Because uh, Rachel Bloom has has said, you know, like, if you have a character who is willing to move across the country for a guy that she barely knows, that is not someone who is, that is not a person who's in a good place in their life. Uh, but that is kind of the thing that you see in a lot of rom-coms like i always think of something like leap year with amy adams which is built pretty much entirely on that premise of 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 a woman who basically says oh i'm going to go to ireland because it's a leap year and on leap day women can can can, uh, propose to men which uh i'm not even sure if that's true (laughs) but that is the that is the conceit of that movie they decided that that was what they were going to build it around and i think it's really fascinating seeing how having resolve essentially resolved the plot with josh over the first two seasons where they got together and then he ended up breaking uh you know then she, then rebecca kind of threw herself into this plan to marry him over the course of like two weeks despite the fact she was clearly not ready and she she herself seemed to have reservations about the whole thing the fact that now josh is in this season apart from the first couple pretty much a separate character who's off doing his own thing it's really interesting seeing her grapple for a sense of her own identity, which even in um, the song, A Diagnosis, which she sings about being diagnosed, you know, she talks about wanting to be assigned a tribe, essentially, that she wants to finally have something that she could point to as not necessarily an explanation for herself, but something that she can identify with and as. And how that then is also mirrored in something like, you know, Heather graduating from community college and suddenly being confronted with the problem that she won't be a student anymore and that's kind of all she ever has been uh i really like the way the show has kind of broadened out has developed its cast more over the over time as good tv shows will do and all of them in this season are looking for some new sense of themselves which you can also see in like the whole daryl wanting to have a child uh subplot it's a show that manages to balance its cast extraordinarily well. Every mm. time a, a character kind of stepped to the fore, I was like, "Oh, they they may be just giving this person, you know, five minutes in the spotlight, and it won't be satisfactory." But invariably, is they manage to balance mm. those characters very well. Perhaps until the kind of queer revelation, the character of Valencia seemed a little 
perfunctory, I guess, in in places. But everyone else seemed to, you know, have a you know a good deal of business. Mm. And she also, they do kind of explore the identity thing for her with her burgeoning uh, social media presence mm-hmm. uh, and her the way in which she uh, seizes on Rebecca's kind of stay in hospital to. to uh, live stream things and to get um, promotional uh, to get sponsors and things like that which uh, I, I thought was uh, was very very funny but that again kind of played into the idea that everyone on the show is kind of searching for something some way of defining themselves and yeah I, I think it's really interesting comparing where the show is at this point to where it was at the beginning to see how all of these characters who seem to be not necessarily caricatures, but certainly didn't seem they weren't kind of fully developed are now at this point, the sort of people where you could say, okay, you could pair off any combination of these characters for an episode and something really interesting would happen because they're all, they all feel like real people and they all feel like they could have compelling chemistry or conflicts. Mm, It's like when white Josh and Nathaniel go to the gay bar, Mm -hmm. like those are two characters that aren't in any way kind of related other than the fact that they both got dumped at the same time they didn't yeah. work at the same place they don't go to nathaniel is makes a point of saying he doesn't go to home base um and they end up doing and then they get a great bit of business in that in that episode mm-hmm. where it's like you know was it fit hot guys have problems too that, that yeah. song is pretty funny whilst also making a point about how um hen parties are ruining gay bars everywhere <laughs> which is true yeah. it's true yeah, but true. i think that's exactly but that's exactly the point matt like it's not you don't see i don't envision the writers of crazy ex-girlfriend and the writers all have their own uh they have a joint twitter account by the way which is absolutely mm. delightful i don't picture them sitting around going what wacky thing can everyone do now they start from character and build up the reason why we haven't seen white josh and nathaniel together before is because there's no reason to mm-hmm. yeah but then they gravitate together and have something because they are in the same situation at that point. And there's mm. something really resonant about that. And I think no one is ill thought through. Everyone mm. has a character and reveals themselves in little ways. And I think it's up there with Parks and Recreation in that even though Pawnee is fictional, I understand entirely everyone there has spirit and character and people can come back and you understand them. And West Covina, even though it is a real place, <laughs> the, the West Covina of the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend universe, they all feel like real people. They feel like friends. They feel like a community. And the way that their relationships, even amongst themselves, I think uh, Rebecca and Paula's relationship is one of the best representations of friend, like a genuinely close, sometimes too close friendship. Mm. I've seen in some time and what Rebecca actually gives everyone license to do in terms of how you were saying about Valencia's social media, Paula has these elements herself of pursuit and planning and scheming because she essentially wants excitement. And I think in many places, Paula is the audience kind of happily aiding and abetting (laughs) Rebecca Mm -hmm. when we really should be telling her to stop because we kind of want to see where she goes and everyone has their stuff in West Covina and no one's perfect but no one's quite on the same level as Rebecca is in terms of their own health and and 
illness. So it's a really faceted world that starts from character. Who'd have thunk? Mm. Mm. If you start character, stuff turns out pretty well. But I really love in this third season how Rebecca actually, and this is the biggest spoiler, through almost over-identifying with her diagnosis that bit too much in order to kind of try and relinquish any sort of responsibility she finally takes it for herself and we get a real sense of this is a real person and Rebecca's finding her own moral compass for herself rather than it will benefit her in some way and I think that is a really interesting arc that we've seen a little bit more such as like Eleanor Shellstrop in The Good Place and Mickey Dobbs Mm -hmm. in Love as well Mm -hmm. and the redemption is so much more resonant I think for seeing them at their absolute worst and see that genuine self-knowledge is exciting I love the therapist as well I don't think Mm. I've raved about her enough (laughs) she's uh, (laughs) she's that she gets her own number as well that maybe finally this time (laughs) this session will be different yeah exactly yeah, it's yeah. Uh, Michael Hyatt. Uh, she plays um, D'Angelo's mum in The Wire. And always oh, yeah. kind of uh, pops up in 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 places, um, but she's always great value uh, in everything she does. And and it's re- it was really nice to see her sing in in this season because she's got one hell of a voice. Mm. Um, the the thing that I kind of worry about now when you have a season which is so um, kind of hangs on such a central incident is like where do they go from here? And, mm. you know, wh- what is the future for the show? Yeah, I, I mean, if this is where the show ends, which I really hope it isn't, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, hell of a, it's a hell of a place to finish with, again, spoilers, Rebecca basically admitting to attempted murder of her own stalker, Trent. Incidentally, it was nice to see Trent back because Paul Welsh, the actor, has <laughs> one of the most... He has one of the most fascinating faces on television. I can't like, look at him and not think of Hen- uh, Henry Cavill playing uh, um, Superman. <laughs> Is, can With the digital... Not, yeah. Exa- he looks like his entire face has had a mask digitally removed. Mm. <laughs> whenever whenever I see him, he reminds me of, like, um, uh, 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 Conrad Veidt, you know, from Casablanca, but also from uh, The Man Who Laughed. You know, he looks like he should be a silent movie villain. Mm. Like his face is nothing but interesting angles that, you know, with expressionistic lighting would be, uh, would really be really compelling. But his, his whole performance, he reminds me of like John Malkovich mm. uh, in the best possible way, you know, sort of dangerous liaisons era, uh, John Malkovich, where he's very good at just making everything he's saying sound reasonable in tone, even as what he is saying is completely demented, <laughs> uh, which is a very it's- hard thing to do. <laughs> This is a lot less cool, but he reminds me of Max Headroom meets the head <laughs> from Smart. Oh, yeah, I can see that, yeah. <laughs> Got that same kind of antic, weird, glitchy. But I agree with you, I think John Malkovich is a great reference as well, and he's brilliant foil to Rebecca. And I love mm-hmm. that he's essentially a season behind with his theme. Yeah, uh, that was amazing when they started <laughs> They started the episode with him performing that one. <laughs> performing he's just that a song. boy in love. Yeah. A male ingenue. <laughs> that is uh, that by was far so the season two theme i'm just a girl in love is by far the best theme uh discuss i agree i'd agree i still I... I still really enjoy singing along more to the first one just because i love a good setup song 
Mm. Um, but yeah, in terms of actual like musical composition and the comedy of it all, and the finale with blam, and then holding the holding for like five seconds too yes. long, just a little it's, too long. I I read somewhere that it said that the the blam and the holding it for a few seconds too long tells you more about Rebecca Bunch's character <laughs> than most TV shows tell you in an entire season of dialogue and action, which is, mm. that was a really, I can't remember where I read that, but it was like, that was a pretty succinct way to sum this up. Yeah, totally. In in terms of, I, I agree, I don't want it to end now, but the thing that I love about the show is I genuinely don't know what's going to happen next. I think mm. there's so many different ways it could be taken. And I think just one more series even would be enough for me. I'd love to see more of Rebecca trying to maybe rebuild her life after this latest. I don't know how, I don't know the correct term. It's odd because (laughs) I've just realised there's a synchronicity between referring to a particularly bad period of mental health as an episode (laughs) and what a TV show is made up of. There we go. Wow. Um, but I'd love, I'd love to see her rebuild her life. And I'm just so invested in everyone else in West Covina that I'm just so desperate to, I just want to live alongside them. I want to see a spinoff that just features George in a place where <laughs> everyone knows his name. And I'm not talking about Cheers. Like just, oh. I, I think the, he's like, at first he's a punchline. And then by the end, he's like one of the most sympathetic characters on the show. And I was mm. like, I'm really behind George. You know what I mean? Yeah, I kind of have that same relationship with White Josh, where, I mean, his name alone is mm. indicative of how his character is kind of established. The fact he is also named Josh, but he happens to be the white one. But like by this season, you know, he, you know, his the, the reason why his relationship with Daryl ends is like for a very kind of is kind of very this very nuanced thing where he has been they've both been established as kind of these real characters who have very different kind of wants and desires for where they want their lives to go and the show treats that conflict very very kind of seriously and it's 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 kind of moving to think that these two characters can't be together because fundamentally they dif- disagree about the fact that you know one of them wants kids and one of them doesn't and uh, I think it's just it's just magical when a show does that when they take a character who maybe initially doesn't seem to be kind of that strong of a, uh, you know, doesn't seem to have that kind of level of depth. But then like three seasons in, you're like so invested in their relationships because they do feel like people who have genuine wants and desires. And then it can say, oh, but these two characters have a conflict. And sometimes there's no, there's no easy compromise for that. It's just a case that this, that that relationships have to end. And a conflict without a fight as well. Mm. It's not an angry head to head it's a sad bittersweet kind of parting Mm. but the thing about white josh is that in terms of his counterpart josh is the only character this season i mean hopefully this can be taken within the correct context because i've just spoken at length at how much i love the show and how brilliant i think it is my one bum note of this season is josh Mm. He's a little, because, seemed a little extraneous, didn't he? I don't really understand what was happening with him because we have this section dedicated to him getting a zit, right? And then he <laughs> touches some dirty glasses, mm. then without washing his hands, tries to 
expunge his uh, blemish mm-hmm. and then wakes up with staff on his face and everyone says it's staff it's staff and then we have this bizarre gross out it looked like something that belonged in a national lampoon film where mm. like you know it's it's literally belushi like i'm a zip and i just couldn't really and i know maybe it was there to lighten up the fact that it's something so ridiculous and that white josh and daryl can literally look across and they can agree that that's disgusting but then josh is just left and he kind of quickly wraps up like, oh, I shouldn't really do stupid stuff like that. And then by the end, he's being held up by Beth Valencia's girlfriend as like someone who's incredibly comfortable with himself and is DJing happily. And I thought, that's not, that's been a bit papered over. I don't really feel like there's enough. This was the man who was running off to become a priest, mm-hmm. which yeah. he then changes his mind about. And... I wanted it so if anything probably season four I want Josh to grow up <laughs> and to get his arc the way that he deserves it mm. yeah because it, it certainly seemed like his the whole season seemed to be pointing towards oh he's going to try and find his place because he also is someone who's been in had been in a kind of like a series of uh, fairly serious relationships for a long time and then suddenly he wasn't in a relationship and there was the question of like what does that mean for him now and then and him trying to like move out of his his parents' house and kind of build a new life for himself. But yeah, then it's like, oh, he became a stripper at a bar. And then, yeah, then, oh, he's kind of happy with himself. It did feel like it was building towards something and then it didn't. And I guess that's a subversion, but not a particularly interesting or satisfying one in the way that the show often is when it subverts things. It wasn't as elegant as they've managed to do for everyone else. Yes. yes. And I would like space for a better twist or or kind of the next step for Josh, really. Mm. So obviously Crazy Eighth Girlfriend is a musical, so it's kind of weird we haven't talked about its songs as much. What what were our favourite songs from uh, season three and, and maybe best overall? Um, from season three, I think... Oh, shit. Actually, it's from season two. Um, well, let's go but, with that one first. Well, there's actually one that's like it's reprised in season three, which is "Who's the New Guy?" Mm. Um, when they're kind of talking about Nathaniel arriving, but they're kind of talking about in they're, what they're talking about him becoming a season regular. Mm-hmm. But by by saying season regular, they mean he eats bran in spring. Yeah, or, that's my favorite you know, lyric in the whole show. <laughs> yeah, or by saying, um, "Are we, you know, are we just bringing this guy in to boost our ratings?" And when I say ratings, I mean those terrible reviews we get on lawyers. dot com, um, which is that's really funny. And the way they bring it back is uh, is incredibly clever. But I think pretty much all of my favorite songs are from season two. So if anyone else has got a season three uh, number, then go for it. Uh, I really love um, "Generalize About Men." Because mm-hmm. I think it's uh, incredibly, it's a great musically and kind of like it, it mimicking that kind of Pointer Sisters high octane pop thing. But also there's this wonderful moment where it goes from these kind of like, this kind of tone of like gossipy, you know, kind of uh, generalized complaints about about men to Paula having this moment of realization where she's raining raising sons and then everyone else you kind of think oh they're going to try and reassure her but instead they'll sing they'll sing they're probably going to grow up to be rapists <laughs> and it's 
and it's such a dark beat to kind of go into that song in especially but uh, and then they kind of commit to it because then the rest of the dance moves uh for the video you know paula's kind of racked with self-doubt as she's like performing all these choreographed dance moves um but it's such it's such a fun song and such a perfect parody uh or, or pastiche rather but yeah just like that one line is what really elevates it because it goes in a a direction which uh I, I wasn't anticipating but thought was absolutely brilliantly done and i think that's what the majority of songs do so well and i think in season three they're able simultaneously being more comfortable with what they can do and a bit more experimental and i think i don't know whether it's my favorite of season three but it's the one that i can't stop thinking about so it's the most notorious one perhaps but it's the first penis i saw mm-hmm. which is paula's doo-wop girl band 60s kind of homage to jeff who she has not got over since her teenage days and is getting closer and closer to the idea of starting something up with him again and just seeing him and it's just so cute and i think donald champlin is is one of the most incredible actors working at the moment in terms of her sheer ability to broadwayify i'm making that up as a verb Mm -hmm. anything I think also maybe this, and I, but I think I'm there along the same with you, Matt. I think all of my you know, favourites are really in season two because um, I think that's also where Paula has her Disney tale princess song of going for a run, mm-hmm. but then peeing a bit <laughs> and then also being really sweaty. And there's something so amazing about everything that she's conveying in that in terms of sounding plausibly like a Disney princess but also the strain of, of actual life coming through. But by far, by far, I'm sorry, not sorry, but my favourite song is I'm Having a Few People Over. Oh, I love that one. It's <laughs> I, I think of it very often because it's so... Uh, Me too. Daryl's delivery It plays so in my head every time I have people over. <laughs> <laughs> it's borrowed away and it lives inside me now. Yeah, it's just the hook of that is just so catchy and irresistible. And I don't need... Really- it's not even a very long song. It's just a great, it's just a great little burst of energy. It's like, I am having a few people over. Yeah, I, I, I do feel, I do feel so good about it. Um, As you gathered, I'm having a few people yeah. over. It's long enough. It's long enough. <laughs> uh, and, uh, another season two song that I quite like is uh, Friendtopia, which is the one where it's kind of a Spice Girls parody where it ends with them talking about staging a coup and <laughs> killing, killing politicians just because I think it's a really... Um, it's such a wonderful extrapolation of what does girl power actually mean? And, you know, and like saying, well, it would mean overthrowing the power structures. It also, yeah, it, 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 uh, it does. And it will eventually Mm -hmm. FYI guys. But the thing that I also love about Friendtopia is I didn't realize what a Spice Girl parody would sound like (laughs) until I heard Mm -hmm. that. And I'm amazed that that it's taken this long, but also the, the frequent references and almost cult like devotion to Hocus Pocus is something I didn't realise was actually also quite a firm feature of female friendship. So that <laughs> lit a very dark place for me. I kept coming back to, if I think about what is stuck in my head from me binge-watching like 11 episodes of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend in a row, the um, it's, not, it's not really a song, it's lots of little bits. The Santa Ana wins, 
um, when oh. the win, the, how the devil wins were in, and it, they do a kind of like a Jersey Boys, Frankie Valley type mm-hmm. doo wop number. And it, I, I, I looked this up. It's actually one of the original stage members of Jersey Boys. Yeah, um, and um, <laughs> it's so fucking catchy, but also contains some really, really intense scientific information about the weather. <laughs> <laughs> it's a meteorological hit. Exactly. Yeah, when I watched that episode, I just couldn't, I couldn't stop singing my son, Santa and a winds to myself <laughs> for like days. It's such a ridiculously catchy melody. Um, uh, I really also like uh, another great season two song, uh, Remember That We Suffered, which is the, uh, <laughs> the song that um, Rebecca's mother and her rabbi sing to her about the plights of the Jewish people, because it's a great kind of, uh, kind of Broadway yiddish theater pastiche that's uh again just like wonderfully delivered and and it helps to get patty lapone to sing it <laughs> you know it's really bringing in a ringer and giving them an amazing song to work with yeah I, um... <laughs> and it contains the it contains the line the sweet and the bitter streisland and hitler wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah they really lent into that one um, yeah, there's, there's the the song in season two which features my favourite visual gag for the entire like series um, is the song "Tell Me I'm Okay, Patrick," where mm-hmm. Rebecca is kind of seeking reassurance on her mental health from uh, like a FedEx delivery guy played by Seth yeah. Green, who's just fairly bemused. <laughs> and in Rebecca's imagination, it cuts from her having a conversation with him uh, in her living room to a kind of fabulous Baker Boy scenario where he's playing the piano and she's laying kind of prostate on top of it. And then it cuts later where she's playing the piano and he's laying on top of it. And then it takes it a step further where they're both laying on the thing and the FedEx parcel is playing the piano. (laughs) And that is is such a stupid (laughs) joke. But it made me laugh like a fucking drain. In, uh, in terms of visual jokes, I really liked the song A Buttload of Cats from season three just because it added Muppet Cats to the mix, which mm. really was the only thing that uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend was missing. Yeah. I mean, it's got a sexy fashion cactus, um, mm-hmm. which is... Uh, you, uh, that's at the beginning of season two, I think. The Love Kernels, it, which is Love Kernels, brilliant. which also has my favourite visual gag, which is the broom Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because it's so, so horribly, so horribly <laughs> like Daryl. Uh, mm. uh, uh, and, uh, yep, yeah, uh, I, I Go to the Zoo as well, another great one, just because it's the best Lonely Island song that the Lonely Island song never recorded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, am I... Oh, and then the, the aquarium, when that drops. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um my all-time favourite song of season two, and I, I think it might be my favourite song of all of uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It might be a controversial choice. Um, Let's Just Have Intercourse, mm-hmm. um, which is the kind of Ed Sheeran parody performed by um, Rachel Bloom and Scott Michael Foster, just because it's so spot-on of that kind of inane music, but also just some of the lines, like the one I've highlighted is... They're talking about just having sex and getting it over with. And um, one of the lines that he says is, I won't be back to normal till I see what your nipples look like. They're probably just straightforward nipples. Which, (laughs) (laughs) the delivery of which is so 
like spot on. And like when he came into it, I was just like, you know, I was I was thinking, who's the new guy? <laughs> you know, I thought, you know, he's 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 what's he adding? And by the end, I was like, he is like one of the one of the you know he's filled out this cast beautifully. I do miss Greg. I'll be honest. Mm. I would love to possibly see some ramifications in season four of Rebecca having slept with his dad. But his songs, I think I could if I wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> is one that I frequently listen to as it is my uh, I lost out on that pitch or that mm-hmm. article got rejected song. Mm. So thanks, Greg. Mm. I gave you yeah. UTI as well as another one of his great ones. Uh, set, <laughs> Settle for me is a, is a classic <laughs> as well. Yeah. They're all bangers. Yeah. He, had, he has the, the highest hit rate, I think, of the whole cast, mainly because he wasn't on the show for that long. But <laughs> um, but yeah, pretty much every Oh, gold. Time. Yes, yeah. So uh, he's the Sid Barrett of the show. Um, just just <laughs> pretty pretty solid across the board. Uh, do we have anything else that we, we kind of wanted to say about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend before we move on to recommends? Uh, maybe just if you haven't watched it, then you're going to be really confused by this episode. <laughs> Mm. That's the, the shot reverse shot promise. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, just that like it is it is kind of unassumingly crept up there as to being one of the best shows on television. Mm. Which I always like it when a, a a TV show kind of comes in the back door like that, and you you kind of you, you don't think it's there, but you you're always coming back to it, and you're like Jesus Christ, that that show really is good. And then like things like this where we just sit around and talk about it you realize you're just just how nuanced to uh use its own word the whole show is and mm. how when i think when we said we were going to watch this i'd only watched season one i think I'd, I'd underestimated the show i liked it and i thought it was good but i, I didn't quite understand how good it was um mm-hmm. but yeah it, that's what i like about the show and i think that that's if anyone who is somehow at the end of this episode having not seen it and is looking for a reason to see it then just the fact that it's really fucking good should be good enough mm. what more do you want yeah it's really good <laughs> yeah <laughs> it it does make me wonder though the fact that like you say it is kind of like it has crept up and it's often not talked about as one of the great shows on television uh as much as perhaps it should be and it does make me wonder if that's largely because it's a show by and centered around female uh, about by women and mainly centered around female characters mm-hmm. which does seem to like like i imagine if you had the exact same premise but it was crazy ex-boyfriend or whatever and it was a show about a guy and there's original songs every week kind of wonder if it'd be talked about a lot more um but it does seem to have just been overshadows but at the same time like it, it it has had this weird life where when it debuted on the CW, it was kind of billed as they're going to be their big breakout hit. And then Jane the Virgin debuted and it was a bigger hit. So it kind of got overshadowed by that. And then since then, Riverdale has come along and been a bigger hit. So it, it does seem as if maybe it's just that the CW, it wasn't as big of a success for the CW, so they didn't push it as hard, even though it won the Golden Globe in its first season. So I don't know. But yeah, it does it does seem... Um, that the fact that a lot of um, arts criticism is fairly male-dominated maybe leads to it being underrated against, I don't know, something like Better Call Saul, which is a really good show, but like it's not necessarily a show that is trying as many crazy things and uh, and succeeding 
at so many of them as Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is. Mm-hmm. And it could do with some songs. It could, yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, Bob Odenkirk's got a great voice. I mean, that song, the songs he used to sing on Mr. Show were... Uh, was quite were quite incredible, particularly when he sang a song as an American preacher, and they just kept overlaying images of himself singing over himself, uh, and it created this kind of glorious club, uh, homage of the most Chicago man ever, just kind of blocking the screen like an <laughs> eclipse. I mean, we could do more of that on Bear Saul in season four. Is all I'm saying. Mm. I'd watch it. Uh, and Jonathan Banks has probably got a great voice as well. I imagine he sounds like Clint Eastwood when he sings his songs. Mm, like Tom Waits. Yeah. Yeah, if he's just singing. and But it's all going to be murder ballads, because mm. what else does that guy know about? Mm, true. And we end this episode like we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of pop culture that we've enjoyed and that we think you, the audience, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? For me, I'm still splitting my sides over a very fatal murder <laughs> which is the onions true crime spoof podcast mm-hmm. and it's 10 minute episodes of absolute gold <laughs> because in no way is it making fun of people who are grieving all it is is it's just lampooning journalists and their that particular kind of true crime journalist that is looking to make themselves on the back of a lot of pain and mm-hmm. destruction and exploitativeness of the pe- of small town America and it also just has some of the best fake podcast adverts I've ever heard so that's that's still uh, carrying on but honestly dangerous to listen to in public but easily consumable on your commute so that's my that's my top tip a very fatal murder I think that is is the most oniony podcast because, like the best onion onion articles, just the name alone is just <laughs> is a perfect. It's such a perfect joke. But then, uh, like the best onion work, it just they kind of keep going deeper and deeper and really exploring the the concept. But every time I hear the phrase "a very fatal murder," it just sends me into paroxysms. It's such a, it's such a good joke, and it's and it's carrying me over until the next season of American Vandal. So. <sighs> God, yeah. I mean, mm. I'm trepidatious about that because it's such a hard trick to do twice. But, oh, that first what season. Oh, yeah. Uh, Matt, what have you got to recommend for us? Um, something totally quite different to that. Uh, I'm going to recommend a documentary called LA92, which mm. is um, about uh, the LA riots, um, which weren't funny. <laughs> um, and it is... Uh, really 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 kind of um electrifying documentary that uses only the archive footage um that was kind of like shot on tv or shot with people using camcorders at the time and and kind of starts with what you'd expect as the the kind of the genesis for the la riots with the rodney king tapes and um kind of rolls back a little bit into the um the kind of civil unrest in the 60s and 70s but then presents the the violence that unfolded over that week um in pretty kind of uncompromising terms um and i watched it not knowing anything about it other than just vaguely what it was about and it was supposed to be good it's made by the guys who did undefeated which won an oscar a few years ago for best Mm. documentary um but it really delivers it's kind of a devastating emotional punch um and it makes a great companion piece to uh the people versus oj simpson 
uh, or the uh, even better um, uh, O.J. Simpson Made in America, um, which if you wanted to know more about the stuff that led up to that, then um, fill your boots because it's two hours of pure misery. <laughs> is that uh, on that there Netflix, Matt? It is, yeah. It's, it, I think it's down as a Netflix exclusive. Uh, um, I think it's one that kind of bobbed around at Sundance like last year maybe and got picked up. But yeah, it's it's on Netflix and it's... It's pretty harrowing. It's tough watching places, um, but well, well worth it. I'll, I'll aim for a nice midpoint between those two. Uh, I'm going to recommend a game, a video game called Celeste, which is available certainly for the Switch because that's what I've been playing on. I think it may be available on other uh, platforms. It is a platformer, uh, essentially uh, a game in which you play this girl called Madeline who is trying to climb a mountain and the entire game consists of you trying to climb up these different uh, levels and the the kind of conceit is it that you only can jump twice you have one jump and then a double jump and then that's it and then you just have to navigate these increasingly maddening platforming levels where you're constantly climbing up up and higher and higher and dying a lot um i have completed the first four levels and i have died more than 2,000 times because <laughs> everything kills you and it leaves you absolutely no room for error. But uh, at the same time that it's doing this, it is uh, telling this uh, really interesting and kind of a piecemeal story about why the character is climbing the mountain. And I haven't reached the point where the whole thing is explained, but it, it, it there's a lot of stuff in there about her own kind of mental health. There's um, a what is essentially a boss battle which i did today which i thought was one of the most brilliant things i've ever seen in a game which is where um when the boss battle starts the uh, character madeline has a panic attack and then the way that the battle plays out is you just have to try and calm yourself down which you do by controlling the character's breathing and visualizing a feather and the a, the aim is to try and keep the feather hovering within one kind of little box that kind of moves up and down on the screen to regulate the breathing of the character and it's this wonderful little serene moment in a game that is otherwise just you constantly stressing out about how you're going to manage each of these pinpoint jumps and failing dozens of times before you get it right once uh and i think it's a really remarkable game that's hugely enjoyable on a mechanical level but really fascinating on a kind of a, a philosophical and tonal level and uh, it has been one of my cultural highlights of the year so far. Uh, it's, it's just, I think it's just absolutely remarkable. And that's just on the Switch, you say? It's, yeah, it's definitely on the Switch. I don't think, I think it may be available on other, yeah, it's on PS4, Xbox, Microsoft Windows and Linux. So I guess you can get it from Steam. But uh, I've been playing it on the Switch because, man, it's, it requires those analog sticks to uh, really help with the uh, pinpoint accuracy. Hmm. Thank you, Emily, for being a guest on the show this week. Uh, where can people find you online? Well, thanks for having me. You can find me online at Benita Emily on the Twitter. I'm also on Instagram if you're interested in uh, pictures of my cat. And I am the producer of Past Tense Podcast. A, a great show. Thank you so much. Um, and we're at Past Tense Pod. So please do join us. Great. And uh, if you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM. You can write us a review and rate us. It helps us grow our audience. You can also find us on Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast and Facebook. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. 
and uh, bye from me. <laughs>